How did you identify it so easily? I want to be a pop singer. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Scattered. We're a group of friends from the same church who are serving God in different countries and we're meeting online to chat through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We'd love you to join us. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Scattered. Jill and Mary are here with me today as we look at Acts uh, chapter 18, verse 18 to the end of chapter 19. Uh, Just as we start, I'm just going to make a little comment that uh, these are tricky passages. Uh, As Jill said earlier, better brains than ours have uh, struggled and wrestled with these passages. There isn't a huge amount of consensus. So we don't know everything. Uh, We don't have all the answers, but we are trusting God that he will lead us uh, the right way through this passage Uh, at the beginning of our passage today, uh, Paul sails to uh, Caesarea and then he goes up and greeted the church. By that, we know that he went to Jerusalem. Uh, That's what that means. And then he goes down to Antioch. There's this comment as well about this vow. We don't know what this vow was, whether it was related to the sort of a Nazarene vow or what it was to do with, whether it was a thankfulness thing or uh, in preparation for what was to come Uh, but regardless Paul cut his hair he fulfilled his vow and he went up to Jerusalem to offer his hair as a uh, as an offering and then uh, went down to Antioch and spent time there down there again then we enter into this time uh, from verse 24 onwards this story about Apollos so, uh, ladies, what are some of the things we can learn about this uh, episode with Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila? Yeah, so this Apollos, so he's from Alexandria, isn't he? And he's come to Ephesus. Um, and he's quite, I think I would find him quite intimidating. We all need Apollos's, I think, in our churches. Um, but I think he's, he sounds quite intimidating. He's learned, learned. He spoke with fervor. He taught accurately. He spoke boldly. Um, he knows only the baptism of John, it says in verse uh, 25. Um, So he appears to uh, not quite be preaching the gospel, uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, And I love, it seems that Priscilla and Aquila come alongside him. They heard him. um, They come alongside him. In the NIV, it says they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Um, and I just love that because we see after this that Apollos is of great use to the early church. He's obviously a very passionate evangelist, but he needed um, this, this couple, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, to come alongside him and quietly, not kind of openly shaming him, but quietly taking him into their home and being like, this is, this is you know, Jesus has come and he has died on the cross and he's resurrected and, you know, our sins can be forgiven. And they kind of just kind of enable him for the rest of his ministry. Um, and I think that's a real encouragement for, um, for us. I wonder how significant um, Priscilla and Aquila felt that their input was, um, you know, in this place. I mean, there's not, there's not that much mention of what else they're doing here. I don't know whether they realized how um, amazing what they did just by quietly coming alongside this guy um, actually was and so like for us like how when we invite someone back to our house um, after church or something or when we quietly come alongside someone and say hang on you were saying this in bible study but I was just wondering if you thought about this or something like that how significant that can be um, I found that really encouraging I don't know what you guys thought 
Yeah, I'm with you, Mary. I The other thing that really encouraged me was the humility of Apollos to receive that because, like you said, he's a really charismatic figure, isn't he? And he's a really good teacher, but he was prepared to humble himself and to receive that instruction from them. And so, yeah, I agree. Like, it's great that they were prepared to do that, but it's so encouraging that he had a humble heart that was prepared to be taught, even though he's renowned as the teacher. Um. Yeah, because by verse 28, he's proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So, you know, that's quite a change. And then from then on, he's, you know, he's challenging the, the Jews in, um, in synagogues. And, you know, so it's a really significant kind of change for him um, just by people quietly coming alongside him. Do you know what it really made me think about was um, our social media age that we live in and how currently... We- people are so we're so quick aren't we in our culture to condemn people as being you're either like me so you you make it into my feed I read what you say because I trust you or we really quick to condemn people as heretics or dodgy um just not just in the Christian world but I think across the board and this I just thought this is such a beautiful example to us isn't it of let's not be quick to dismiss people who might have things think about things differently to us but let's try and encourage them and point them to Jesus yeah and I think it speaks into how we deal with conflict Uh, one of the ways I came across Anne Voskamp who's like one of my favorites um was that somebody wrote a review about her book um a thousand gifts or something um and uh and this guy actually wrote an article later saying that um she had got in touch with him not to like have a go at him or anything like that she invited him round um to her house to talk about stuff um and I don't know what happened I mean I don't know whether he like hugely changed his view of her book or anything like that but I remember him saying how significant it was for him that um instead of kind of having this big public debate about you know whether her book was right or wrong or whatever she invited him into her home and they dialogued um, and I think that's a really powerful um way to stay unified as a church yeah I was just gonna say that I just love the fact that they they clearly didn't discredit Apollos in public you know I'm not saying that therefore everything needs to be done privately you know Paul talks later in uh 1 Corinthians about how church needs to deal with discipline and and correction and that kind of thing but he, he they don't discredit him because of one little mistake it's so beautiful how they just come alongside him we value our relationship with you we value the work you're doing but let us show you something better so that you can enjoy father son and holy spirit that that oneness of god and you can teach it to others mm. um yeah i just think they saw his potential they loved him well and they did didn't discredit the message of the gospel because if they'd come in all guns blazing with him publicly it might have discredited the whole gospel in that area you know this really scholarly eloquent powerful speaker might have been lost (laughs) um but equally they didn't um they did truth was at stake wasn't it so they did take the time to sit him down and explain more fully to him about jesus brave you know they were like (laughs) Uh, uh, Aquila was they were handymen they made tents and this guy was a really learned uh, scholarly guy very highly educated for the sort of the time and yet 
these tent makers, they were like, the truth is at stake here. Let's not let rank or perceived social status or anything uh, stop us here. We need, this is, this is a serious issue, but serious issues can be dealt with in a gentle way, can't they? So they have had this episode with uh, Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. And then in chapter 19, we cut back to Paul. Uh, so who's going to take this one on about uh, the uh, episode with Paul and uh, these disciples? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? It's I found it challenging reading because at first I was like, what? So Paul... Um, Paul's going, arrives at Ephesus, he finds some disciples, and they're called disciples here. Um, I mean, it's not clear whether that means that they're followers of Jesus, and I think it, um, uh, you need to read on. And he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, no, we've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. Um, and he says, what baptism did you, did you receive? John's baptism, which we've already heard that Apollos also had. So again, there's this gap, isn't there? in in their understanding the fact that Jesus has come he's been crucified and he's been resurrected there's a big gap for them um, that needs filling in Um, and then in verse four Paul says John's baptism was a baptism of repentance Um, and then he he goes on to baptize them in the name of the Lord Jesus Um, what's your take on all of this Jill I did a bit of reading because equally I was a bit like um one of the really helpful things I read was that um, John, even though John's in our New Testament, he was almost like the last of the Old Testament prophets. And mm-hmm. so actually they are looking for a Messiah. It, you know, John's ministry was all about the Messiah's coming and pointing forwards to Jesus. And yeah, like you said, there's a gap in understanding about what Jesus has accomplished and the Holy Spirit has come. And so it just feels like it's, I think it's hard to apply this passage into our situation today because there there are no longer any apostles, uh, followers of John or followers of Apollos even because the news is caught up now and that we have the Bible, we have the full New Testament. Um, it's hard to find people in the position that these were in. And so I think we need to be careful of applying um oh we need to have a second baptism like they had um now i know that we'd have pentecostal brothers and sisters that would think that we need a second baptism but i think my understanding of it from reading this is that they hadn't received the holy spirit at all and that i think we receive the holy spirit when we believe because it's the spirit that enables us to believe in jesus isn't it Something I read this week said that the Holy Spirit is a very shy spirit because it points away from itself always to the Lord Jesus. And so here they are receiving the Holy Spirit, which enables them to believe in Father, Son and Spirit. I just think it's a really um, dramatic sort of inauguration for Paul's ministry in Ephesus, a city that is rife with magic and false religion. It's, um, you know, I, I'm personally, I'm unconvinced of the sort of, this is the only time where this happens in the New Testament. So I would say it's not normative. Um, and actually, you know, baptism with the baptism and um, receiving of the Holy Spirit in relation to baptism and that kind of thing. There's such a wide variety 
in acts about when each one happens. So uh, I would probably lean more towards it's a demonstration required with this particular group at this particular time and is a demonstration of the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit when you receive it, like rather than this must happen in this particular way. Um, yeah, I think it's really good to to read around what different people think, like what, yeah. for example, here, what Pentecostals think and where they get that from. I mean, if you read Acts 8, again, it's it's confusing, isn't it? What What is this? Um, second baptism or, or second kind of receiving of the spirit um, I read a few around a few people on this something that I found helpful was an article uh, by John Piper um, on this and he talked about um, how re when you receive the Holy Spirit at conversion um, the Holy Spirit causes you to be able to even repent like there's that kind of filling of the Holy Spirit that comes when you know you have you have no choice you just you have this sudden awareness of your sin and then you repent and you believe in Jesus there's that filling um, and then there is this second filling um, that that you can kind of that is like an ongoing thing in a Christian's life I mean um, Jumpy would say that we're leaky as Christians and we we need to just keep asking for this filling of the spirit and sometimes that's you know before we're doing some kind of ministry and he enables us to do that sometimes um, it's for an act of obedience in our lives um, that feels hard um, sometimes it, it's just you know just before doing a bible study like this we we prayed that we'd be filled with the spirit uh, for, you know to enable us to be able to to expand you know expand from God's word so it's <clears throat> it's kind of like a, an ongoing thing in the Christian's life I think that we need to just keep I think sometimes I forget um that I'm leaky and that we that we mm. need this um I don't know what you think about that yeah I think it's a great thing to pray every morning isn't it fill me with your spirit lord for today because I mm. need it um yeah yeah like all the all the mums out there at the moment homeschooling and at their wits end like how much do we mums need to be crying out to God for his help just at the beginning of the day for homeschooling <laughs> and yeah. let alone other big things I read something really interesting about it to do with actually filling of the Holy Spirit comes alongside belief and when we're having a bad day it's because we're believing wrong things about God and actually we're filled with the Spirit as we believe who God is and how relevant he is to whatever circumstance we find ourselves in and I found that really helpful because, yeah, when you unpack your heart, when you're grumpy or rude or horrible to your children, that's often because your heart's believing the wrong thing in that situation, isn't it? And so I thought that's a really helpful link, isn't it, between belief mm. and the Holy Spirit um, flowing in our lives. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think we should miss the um the joy um of what this this occasion must have brought for these 12 men like suddenly this thing that they were so ready for in their hearts um ha has happened and paul has shared with them about jesus death and resurrection and then they receive the holy spirit i just think sometimes when we get caught up in in arguing about what this narrative means for us i think we miss just how amazing it is that the holy spirit comes and just wipes through that place and just produce must have produced so much joy and like Helen said that this was a bouncing point for Paul's ministry um, in Ephesus and it's just kind of exciting isn't it it's hard for us isn't it to imagine what it must have been like to be looking forward to the day of the saviour and mm -hmm. waiting and to 
to suddenly see, oh, it's happened. And the freedom and yeah, the spiritual filling that comes with that must have been so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see why then after this has happened, Paul goes into the synagogue and for three months reasons in the synagogue and then he goes into this when when they've had enough of him and he's had enough of them he's withdrawn from them and then he goes reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus you know he how many years he was there for two years every day because this is how important the message is and the Jews, and it says that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Like, boom, there's a challenge for us. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so then uh, we have this next interesting uh, passage about the seven sons of Sceva. So uh, uh, what is so? What is this ultimately about? And uh, what can we learn from it? What surprised you? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that Verse 11 says, extraordinary miracles were happening even. So miracles happen all the time in Acts, don't they? But these are extraordinary by the text's own standards in that so many people were being healed by Paul in Jesus' name and evil spirits were coming out of people. But then there was this sort of um, people were taking cloths from Paul handkerchiefs, sweatbands that Paul's wiping his sweat on and using them to then um, do miracles and exorcisms. I find that quite surprising. Yeah. I think like one of my take-homes from this, so there's these seven sons, aren't there? And they're like, we want to get in on this um, um, this exorcism stuff. So they're going around uh, invoking the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. I'm guessing they had some measure of success in that. Um, and then they they get to this guy who um, the evil spirit answered them, um, Jesus I know, Paul I know about, but who are you? And then he beats them. And I mean, it's kind of slightly funny, but also it is terrifying, isn't it? Like, like don't mess with evil spirits. Like, don't don't take this lightly. Like, there is there is a lot of danger. I mean. In the country that I live in, you see a lot of um, demon possession um, and it is dark and it's dangerous. Um, and I think these guys were messing with it um, in, a, in a way that they shouldn't have done. Yeah, I think it's really easy, isn't it, for us sitting here in our Western world to almost dismiss this passage as irrelevant for us or for feeling that it's something that's far off. But the reality is that the devil does operate and his demons do operate around us. Um, and you know, there's that quote that the the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. I would say convincing the Western world, having worked in um, East Africa, I think they they are very very aware of the dark spiritual realm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the devil has perfect theology. You know, we and I think this demonstrates that, doesn't it? The devil is the only one apart from you know, God understands himself completely, but the devil has perfect theology. Jesus, I know. I recognize who Jesus is perfectly and he terrifies me. Mm. Paul, I recognize him because he is a faithful servant of Jesus. So I know that, that, that God works through him powerfully and I'm scared of him. Who are you? Mm. (laughs) I was like, wow, it's almost like you know, when you sort of wave at somebody, you half know, you're like, hi, and they just mm. stare straight through you. 
that the awfulness and it just sort of removes that supposed that sort of um these seven sons feel like they're really powerful because they're invoking Jesus name but actually I th- yeah I think Jesus name is powerless for people who don't have the power of Jesus in their lives mm. Yeah. yeah, but the but the flip side is what an encouragement if we are friends of Jesus that His name is so powerful and mm. going on, you know, towards the end of that section, there's such a response to this in the whole town, isn't there? In the whole of Ephesus, people see that Jesus is more powerful than the evil spirits, and people are fearful and come and confess and confess what they're doing privately and want to make themselves right with God, don't they? Because they see that if there's a power struggle, Jesus Jesus wins every time. Yeah, isn't it wonderful that they, um, that out of such a kind of dark and sad episode comes, you know, right worship of God and right fear of God um, and such costly fear as well. Like they calculated the value to come to 50,000 drachmas. Like that was a lot of money. Um, and in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And I love that in this way. It's like it's not it's not the easiest way. It's not, you know, but it's mm. it's, it's God's word is spreading in power. Yeah, the, I love this little section is bookended, isn't it? It's at the start. It's God was doing extraordinary miracles. And then at the end, the word of the Lord continued to increase. Like that's what this is about. This isn't about Paul being especially close and to Jesus and being holy. This is about God powerfully working through Paul to destroy the dark spiritual realm. It reminds me of the phrase from last week of, you know, the apostles were turning the world upside down. And here there's a big bonfire at the end of this section and all the occult practices are literally being burnt up, aren't they? And the name of Jesus is being extolled. And that's the right way up again, isn't it? And that's the way that that's that's so loving um, for Ephesus. That's the that's worship of the true God rather than worship of all these false um, things. Mm. This this episode, um, this little bit at the end where they have the massive bonfire, I found that really challenging. I I might not have like silver or anything. But it really made me question, what is it that I'm, what is it that I've been hanging on to? What practices have I been continuing to do, even though I am now a follower of Jesus? What things have I hung on to um, that stop me from completely and fully worshipping Jesus in the right way? Yeah, Um, I think our danger is Jesus and, isn't it? You know, yes, I trust in Jesus. Yes. I want to be filled with the spirit each day, but I, I also need this to make my life feel okay. Or I, I couldn't do that. That would be too hard. But here, when the fear of the Lord fell upon them, everything was burnt, wasn't it? Because they saw the reality of Jesus is all that we need. And I love at the at the end of this section, um, Paul says, uh, after I've been um, through Macedonian Achaia, I must visit Rome also. So he's like still on, you know, these incredible things are happening around him, but he's like, I want to go to Rome because Rome is the center of the Roman empire. And if I, I, you know, it's almost like if I can hit, hit the middle, there's just going to be so many ripple effects from there. Um, And I just love his kind of passion to 
get to the next place. He's not just like reveling in what's happening where he is. He's just ready to go to the next place because he's got a, a, an aim in, in mind, which is for the, for, you know, because he knows that if he gets to the center of the Roman world, the Roman world is huge. I mean, it comes all the way to the UK. Um, so yeah, it's, I just think it's really significant here that he's like, but I must visit, visit Rome also. Um, I don't know if that's the first time he's mentioned that. And it's really significant, isn't it, that immediately after he says this, there's a massive riot. <laughs> mm, yeah. You know, around this time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way in verse 23. It's mm. not a coincidence that Paul has set himself this plan and then, boom, there's this, this uh, big issue with the way. So it's Christianity, effectively. Um, mm. So, yeah, what about this riot? Um Talk to me about what, what it's all about and yeah, what things can, how can it serve as a warning to us today? What do you reckon? I, I was thinking this is actually about idolatry, isn't it? And all the different ways that we worship other things rather than Jesus. And I was really struck again, like we've seen this repetitively, haven't we, through Acts, but um, Demetrius, his um, economic livelihood is challenged isn't it by the fact that Paul's coming in people are turning away from idol worship and turning to Jesus and so Demetrius stirs up trouble because he's worried for his job if people stop buying the idols to the um, temple of the great goddess Artemis then his funding stream is going to dry up but I just think within that, there's so many different things about they're really proud of their city, aren't they? They're really proud of the fact that people travel for miles to see the temple. I read somewhere that a piece of rock had fallen from the sky and they really believed that Artemis herself had dropped this statue of herself into their city. So clearly that brings loads of tourists in and clearly that brings in loads of money. And Paul's undermining all these different things that make... Ephesus great and so I just thought there was whilst there was a financial idol that he's uncovering as well there's the idol of don't we love Manchester if you live in Manchester and we do or don't you love all these things that make the city great so there's yeah there's loads of different buttons that he pushes to to cause people to rise up against the truth of Jesus yeah it's striking isn't it because really like Christianity should transform a culture. Um, I think sometimes that's something that we um, are afraid of. Um, and I think we're afraid to be different. And I think we're afraid to say things that um, don't fit in with what people might think. Um, but here, you know, you can see here and before, like when they're burning their scrolls, like Christianity makes waves, should make waves. It should challenge a culture. It should look different um, and it's costly. Um, you know, it's costly to economies sometimes because, you know, we should be fighting against the slave trade. Um, and that includes, you know, in, in the countries that we're in, we should be fighting for justice for people that cause other people to get angry who make money out of, you know, like we saw with the slave girl um, who Paul freed from uh, her kind of spirit of divination. Like it, it challenges a culture and it makes people angry. And I think when our churches aren't doing that, then we've got a problem. Yeah. And I, I really love in this passage as well, you know, Artemis 
um, is the goddess of safe and sound, effectively safety. She's the goddess of safety. And she's also the goddess over supernatural powers. So I just love God's providence in making all of this happen. The irony of what's just happened. Now uh, we've got this riot at the temple of Artemis because the idol is being shaken. The safe and sound, you know, Paul's planning to go to Rome. We all, you know, good things do not happen to Paul in Rome. He's just picked a life that is going to guarantee him non-safety <laughs> and non-soundness. Um, and, you know, we've shaken and he's challenged these people on their idolatry. And then there's a huge riot. I just love the way that God works through smashing our idols it's god who smashes the idols you know that yeah i just i just love it i also found it a little frightening um you know the riot happening it's a picture of reactions when idols are challenged especially in today's culture where challenging people is not a good thing or seen not as a good thing you can it's a little picture of what goes on in people's hearts when you when you push them in their idolatry I, I found it really helpful to rub hard into my heart because I, it, yeah. I find that hard that actually it's a kindness, isn't it, to expose people's idols because their idols don't deliver. They're only ever going to be disappointed by their idols. Idols can't take us to heaven. They can't give us that sense of joy and peace that only Jesus can. And so when I was sort of wrestling with how hard I find it to challenge people's idols, I I was just really helped by thinking that's kind Jill it's kind to do that because and I, I was struck by all they can do when their idols threatened here is shout and they just shout don't they again and again great is Artemis of the Ephesians but it doesn't mean anything and it reminded me of my boys on a Saturday afternoon shouting rovers are the best we all know that's not true boys you can shout it as loud as you want but it doesn't change the fact that they're not the best football team <laughs> I just thought it's the same isn't it it's kind to relieve people of their wrong view of their delusions of, what, of their delusions that especially when it's something that they are investing their whole lives in because it's not going to deliver. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? To like, to look into our own hearts and be like, what, what is nestled in there nice and safely and comfortably, which is, which is actually kind of t going towards idolatry. Um, I mean, are we, are we really wanting, you know, are we putting our, our idol on our husbands um, in marriage? Like, do we, do we try and get all of our love and safety and security out of them and not God? I mean, do we want to be really successful or really, you know, the best missionary or the best vicar's wife or, you know, have a really good reputation? Like, I don't know, I was, I was challenged by this. And, and at the, the end of the day, like you said, Jill, they are empty. Like, even if we attained those things um, and had a brilliant, amazing reputation or became the most famous um, pop singer in the world. You, you hear so often, don't you, of people who reach those places and they're like, it's empty. There's ashes in my mouth. And you, you got know, sad, Mary. How did you identify it so easily? I want to be a pop singer. Give us, give us a tune, Jill. I think everyone <laughs> wants to hear. <laughs> it can be a Rover's chant, if you like. <laughs> yeah, that's all I do, Rover's chants. <laughs> <laughs> Literally choking with laughter 
<laughs> that herself. Okay. No, um, if I'm honest, reputation is a ma- that's that I have to root that out a lot regularly. That's yeah. the one that's really likes to nestle in, and and then it stops you, and it's linked in it because it stops you saying hard things to people because you want mm. them to like you, and that's mm. not kind. Yeah, I think the key thing here, isn't it, is it's all very well talking to people, other people about their idolatry, but it's the pull the plank out of your own eye before you start dealing with the speck in theirs. Mm. Um, I think we really need to, we need to encourage each other to look at our own lives at the same time as challenging other people on, on theirs. And at the same time as rejoicing in the fact that we have, we've been freed from our idols through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And he is stronger and better than them. Um, and ultimately like our fulfillment and joy if we if we focus on him and dwell in him and seek him like that's where we will get that that peace and that filling um, that we seek in other things um yeah it's easy it's quite I find it quite easy sometimes to bash myself and and look down but often we're called to, to look up like yes recognize how you know dark our heart can be but also then take that and take it to the cross and see Jesus and the fact that he holds his hand out to us in our idolatry and says come I've got a better way for you yeah that's that's where life is found isn't it Mm. brilliant nicely finished ladies uh thank you very much and we'll see you next week bye bye bye